We're in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, back here at the beginning of chapter three, the word if could be also translated since. So let's read it again. Just this verse here. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Now, I want to just stop right there, because actually, as we deal with this whole topic of being raised with Christ, I want you to understand that this is actually something most Christians don't know about or barely grasp, even if they do. And I'll be honest with you. I can't look at you and tell you I fully understand what it means to be raised with Christ. But I want to take some time tonight to show you that. If you are in Christ, if you have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been given eternal life, if you are a new creation, there is an element which the Bible describes in which we have already, not one day we will be, even though that is true, we have already been raised with Christ. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once, or once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, <clears throat> excuse me, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now we, we understand a little bit of the fact that in the coming ages he's going to show what he's done when we get to heaven. But look again at verse 6. It says, He's already raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In some way in which I cannot fully describe to you, but the Bible starts to talk about it, and we're going to try to break it down, or as I like to say, unpack it a little bit tonight. In some way, when you got saved, you not only were put in Christ and Christ was put in you, you were at that same time raised with Christ and seated with God at that moment in the heavenly places. Now again, you try to figure it out, it's going to make your head hurt. But let's go and see if we can understand a little bit more of what it actually means. In Ephesians chapter 1, go back to Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 15 through 23. Paul says, for this reason, after he's just described a lot of what he just talked about there in chapter 1, the beginning of it. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's, that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So stick with me here because we're going to pull some stuff out of here. Well, what he, Paul said this is first. He said, once I heard about your salvation and your love toward all the saints, I began to pray for you. I didn't pray that you would get saved. I know you're saved. I didn't pray that you would love each other, although that is something that God desires. And Paulette and other places talked about their need to love each other more and more. But Paul said, my prayer for you now is this, that you'll begin to move into that realm of understanding that you have the eyes of your heart opened. That God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's already given you his spirit, everything you need for life and godliness. Second Peter chapter three, verse one. Uh, sorry, chapter second Peter chapter one, verse three says his his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. We've already got everything. And as you know, in our study of Colossians, Paul's been saying, look, you don't need another experience. You don't need a second baptism. When you got saved, you already got everything you need. But now what Paul's saying is, is my prayer is that the eyes of your heart would be opened to understand everything that came with your salvation. He talks about the hope to which he's called you. In other words, what's going to be coming in heaven. He's also praying that we'd understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is his immeasurably greatness, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then look at what it says next. That same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him where? At the right hand of God, where? In the heavenly places. In other words, Paul says... God raised Jesus from the dead, and he's seated now at the right hand of the Father, and everything's been put under his feet. And look at, look at the end of verse uh, 23. He said he's been given to the, as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, so get, stick with me here. Christ was raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. All authority's been given to him. And he has been given as head over who? Over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Go now with that understanding. Go back to Colossians chapter 2 and look at verse 9. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, and then we're also going to say in, go into verse 10. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, we're, we're going to talk about tonight as we start to break down this section in Colossians is going to come from hopefully a beginning to understand the fact that when we are in Christ, when you are a new creation, you already have been given. You already have access, as you're going to see tonight, by faith. To all rule and authority and the fact that actually as Christ was raised to sit at the Father's right hand, who was raised with him? We were. We were raised with him. Now, we're, yes, we're still down here on this earth. Yes, his spirit does live within us. 
But we keep thinking that there is a separation between us and him. Folks, the spiritual realm might not be up there. You ever, ever thought about this? Because when Jesus, people say, well, Jim, it has to be up there. Jesus ascended. Well, if it's up there, it's down there for China. Right? You ever thought about that? Actually, the spiritual realm is another dimension that we just can't see with these eyes unless God opens our eyes to it. Did all of a sudden the angels of heaven start to come down or the chariots of fire that surrounded that city, that sit around the, the army that had surrounded the city around Elisha, did they just come down to visit or, had, or is it a possibility they are always there? Doesn't the Bible talk about how we're visited by angels unaware? The spiritual realm is a realm that is here most likely, just we can't see it, taste it, feel it or touch it. But we've got this mindset over the years to think one day we'll go be with him. I'm saying to you, God is everywhere. He's not up there and we're down here. God is filling all in all. God's here. The heavenly realm is here. We now need to learn how to live in this world, understand that in saying that we are already seated with him in the heavenly places, in that spiritual realm of authority and power, which controls all things, is way more powerful than the physical that we can see. You need to understand that because of the fact that we're in Christ, there is a connection that has occurred that everything that Jesus has been given is now given to us as well. Now, we've got to be careful. There's some biblical truth here that we're heading into that a lot of Christians are afraid of because of this reason. There are those who take this biblical truth to unbiblical realms. There are those in Christendom who start teaching about things of the spirit and the word authority that we have been given. And they start exercising authority like they're God. Let me show you something real quick. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Starting in verse 5. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been said, testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him? This is Psalm 8. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. As much as Psalm 8, you may read that and say, what's me, God, that you would be mindful of me? If you really look at the full context of Psalm 8, it's talking about Jesus. Now, look what it says now, the, the second part of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, meaning Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. Didn't Jesus say that in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All right. But in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Do you see the difference here? All authority has been given to him. Is Jesus exercising that full authority right now on the earth? No. He is for a reason and for his, his reasons for a time. In places he'll exercise it. In other places he does not exercise it because he has a purpose and a plan. You understand? Could he just stop Satan right now and put him in the pit forever and ever? Sure. But he's chosen not to. 
And even amazingly to us who understand what the Bible says about the times that are to come, even though Satan's about to be bound for a thousand years in the pit, he's going to be released. All of us say, why? Well, God has his reasons. So what I want you to understand is this, as we move into looking at this authority that we've been given in Christ, please don't be so afraid of going out onto a limb theologically or spiritually that you don't climb the tree anymore. But also at the same time, make sure that as you listen to those who teach about the authority that we have in Christ, make sure that their teaching lines up with the fullness of the word of God. You cannot start claiming your authority because you are in Christ when places that God has not exercised that authority. In other words, I've heard Christians say, well, that sickness in you, I bind that in the name of Jesus. Satan, I command. Guess what? Paul asked Jesus three times to take away a certain sickness, did he not? And God said, actually, I'm not going to exercise my authority over that, for, but for my greater purposes and for your strengthening and for my glory, I'm going to leave it. So who are we to say that any time we can just exercise authority over anything? Do we have authority? Yes. But the Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Now, why does he leave? Because you got all big and bold and stuck your chest out and claimed the name of Jesus? No, it's because you backed up into the robe of your father, and he saw the one he's really afraid of. So I want you to understand that we have authority, but let's begin to now let the scriptures show us what authority we have and how we can exercise that authority without going too far and start claiming authority we don't have. Yes, sir. So the authority is always there, but it's subject to God's discretion. Exactly. His, the authority is always there, but it is subject Even to his discretion. Choosing not to act, he's still an authority. Without question. Without question. All right. So are we, are we, are we together so far now as we move into this? Because I really felt like I had to chase that rabbit for a second because there's a lot of people that talk about the authority we have in Jesus and they've taken it a little too far. So let's stick with the biblical definition of it, all right? This, um, this term raised could also be translated co-resurrected. Go back to Colossians. You forgot what book we were in. Colossians chapter 3. It says, we have, since we have been raised with Christ, it actually could be written, since you have been co-resurrected with Christ. Now, this co-resurrection has two main parts. Does anybody know what the first part is? Good for you. You see, you can't have a resurrection unless there's been a death first. Our co-resurrection with Christ, we have to first understand the death part of it, all right? We were united with Jesus in his death when we were united with Christ in his resurrection. You need to understand that. Before we get into the resurrection power that we have, let's go back and see what the scripture says about this death that we have experienced from being united with Christ. Go to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because Paul had just said it didn't matter how much sin there is. God's grace is even greater. Are we to continue in sin that we can get more grace? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members. And a better word for that word, members, your body parts. And your body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, by the way, when, when Paul here talks about the fact that when you were buried with him in baptism, he's not talking about your water baptism. He's talking about the time that you were saved, at the time you were put into Christ. Our water baptism is our physical demonstration, our outward demonstration of what has already happened inside. Baptism is important. It's one of the things that God's commanded us to do. But don't think, well, I'm in Christ because I was baptized. No, you were in, put in Christ. And that's, what, that's why the word baptizo in the Greek it means a, a dipping in or a dunking under, if you will. It's actually a term that they used back in the days when they were dyeing cloth. They would have a vat of uh, liquid that had the dye in it. And they would take a piece of cloth and they would dip, dip it in the, the, the water, if you will, in the dye. And when it came out, it was the color of what it had been put into. And that's kind of the word picture. When we received Jesus as our Savior, at that moment he saved us. When we responded in faith. Now we get baptized to identify with him publicly and say, the old me's gone, I'm a new creation. But at the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior and God put his spirit within you, that's when you were baptized. That's when you were baptized in Christ. You understand what I'm saying? Remember how Jesus said in that day, you're going to realize that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. We're swimming in God. <laughs> you have been baptized at the moment you trusted Christ. Now, look at what Paul says. Don't you know, verse 3, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, what happened to Jesus when he died is now available and has happened to you because you're in Christ. Let me ask you a question, a couple questions. Can Jesus die again? No, we've already read that here. Death has no power over him. Do you understand that actually death really has no power over us who are in Christ now? Oh, our physical bodies may stop working, but the Bible already talks. Jesus himself said it in John chapter 11. He said, uh, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And whoever lives and believes in me will live even though he dies. Wait a minute, you just said I'd never die, but I'll live even though I die. He said, I'm talking spiritually and physically. But because of what has happened to us spiritually, supernaturally now, we don't have to worry about death. Actually, when the time comes for your body to stop working, I can almost guarantee you, because if you're in Christ, the Bible's given us lots of promises about this, that you will pass from this life to the next, and it won't be as traumatic as we've been taught it will be. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You know, it doesn't matter how you're going to die. Because your physical body is going to stop working at some time, some way. But at that moment that that happens, by the way, did anybody hear Stephen say, ooh, ow? <laughs> did we read that anywhere in Acts 7 when he's being stoned? Did he say, ah? And did, did, he, did, he, did he say, Father, ow, forgive him, ooh? No, 
it almost looks like he wasn't even feeling the rocks. The physical was irrelevant because why? He was passing from this life to the next. And even though his body was dying, death had no power over him anymore. And folks, if you're in Christ, you shouldn't fear death. You shouldn't be fearing death. Now, I'm not telling you to go stand out in the road and say, I don't fear death anymore. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. But at the same time, what I want, there are too many Christians that are worried about that time when they die. Is God going to be there for me? Listen, what has he promised? He said in John 14, if I go to my father's house or put many rooms, if I weren't so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what did he say? I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. Whether that's the rapture or when he comes to get us individually before then, the Bible says Jesus himself is going to come get us. Don't listen to those stories about the dark tunnel and the light at the end and all that kind of stuff that people say. Listen, the Bible says that the absent from the body is present with the Lord. Yes, sir. Go ahead. The Egyptian Christians were singing. Yes. If you've ever read Fox's books of martyrs, you'll be amazed at some of the things that were happening. And there was one man who um, he, he told a friend of his as he was being burned at the stake that he was going to clap if he didn't feel it. And he clapped as his arms were falling off. You have been buried with him in his death. So first of all, let's get that in our minds. We don't have to worry about death. It's been taken care of. But there's something else there. Was Jesus tempted by sin while he was in the body? Yes. A little or a lot? Everything. In every way. Now, yet without sin. Can Jesus be tempted anymore? No. 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 He's got victory over that, correct? Yes. Now, Paul says, because we have been united with Christ in God, we now have the ability, stick with me, don't take this too far yet. We now have the ability, because of Christ within us, who has already defeated this body of flesh, who's already had victory over temptation and never sinned, we now have the ability within us, if we know how to walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, we now have the ability, because of Christ in us, to actually say no to sin, and sin will not have any power over us anymore. Now, some of you are saying, well, maybe I'm not saved. Stick with me. Paul understood the struggle. The things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. But look at what he says here. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your body parts, this is verse 12 and 13, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have control or dominion over you, because you're... Not under the law anymore, but under grace. And so there's an element here. We're going to get into this if we have time here. We're going to get into this, hopefully, as we get into where Paul starts to say, then put off this stuff, put away this stuff, and put on this other stuff. But in order to go there, you've got to stop thinking about it the way we always have, like, I'm going to try harder, I'm not going to do that anymore. What did we find out last week about that? If you give yourself a set of rules to follow to defeat sin, what have you just done? You just fueled your sin, Remember? What's the power of sin? The law. Once the law said, don't do this, Paul said, every covetous desire rose up within me and I died. So because we're in Christ, we co-resurrected with Christ. First of all, we need to understand that we have been put or sin has been put to death in our mortal bodies because of our union with Christ. Now, does that mean we're not tempted still? Oh, you can be tempted until you die. 
I shared with the guys at Men in Motion today at lunch, years ago when I was a younger Christian, I remember thinking as I grew in my walk with the Lord, temptation would become less and less. I thought that as I got closer to Jesus, the things of this world would become less and less. Until I was reading one day that Jesus was in the garden right before the cross and he was tempted not to go to the cross. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is God. He's sinless. He's perfect. And he's still tempted right up to the last minute. I guess that means I'm going to be tempted right up to the last minute. And you know what, as I found? Actually, for God's purposes, sometimes the temptation has come, become greater since I've gotten closer to Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I'm also learning now to have way more victory because of the truth that's now sitting into my mind. I was taught, stop doing that. Weren't you? Stop doing that. How did Becky's grandmother used to say it? I love you, but I hate your low down ways. <laughs> you need to stop. How many of you have tried to stop? How'd it work out for you? Still, yeah, if you're still trying, you never get there. But because of the fact that Christ is in us, the same Jesus who was tempted in every way, yet was able to never sin, wants to give us victory over sin. This is going to be a process of our coming to understand what it means to have been co-resurrected with Christ. That's why over and over, and we don't have time to look at the passages because I've already gotten a little bit bogged down more than I planned to tonight, but... All the way through the scriptures, I could show you. How does the Bible describe our growth, our growing in the knowledge of Jesus? Pray that your eyes would be open, the eyes of your heart would be open. And for too long, we in our churches have thought that if we just make a set of rules, if we can make our bylaws the right way, if we can make our church manual be the right way, we can get everybody to behave. It's not going to do it. It's going to have to be a thing of the heart. It's going to have to be over time. It's going to have to be a process that God does. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that we have to accept and understand that one day God will finish what he started. And we're to give each other grace along the way. There's a second part of this co-resurrection. The first part is our death with Christ. What's the second part? A resurrection. <laughs> Excuse me. Just as Jesus rose from the dead and experiences all the benefits of His eternal power and glory, we too, who are in Him, have that same victory and power available to us, who learn to live out of our new nature in Christ versus our old flesh. Alright? I, I don't want to say old nature, new nature versus old nature, because the Bible says, what happened to my old nature? Dead. <coughs> it's dead. People, for years, I used to teach this. I used to teach that you had a new nature and an old nature. And, and I used to use the old white dog and black dog illustration. Has anybody ever heard the white dog and black dog illustration? For those of you that haven't, uh, the, the illustration goes like this. you got a white dog and a black dog. They're the exact same breed, exact same size, exact same weight. If a white dog and a black dog were to fight, which one would win? And the answer is, whichever one I feed the most. <coughs> and, excuse me, and for years, I used to teach that whichever side of me I would feed more would win. Doesn't the Bible say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world? And not only that, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Yet the life I live, I live by faith in the one who died for me. Let me ask you a question. 
If Paul had been crucified with Christ, what died? The old, the old nature. Your old nature has been put to death. And most Christians don't understand that. They still think they got a good twin and a bad twin. <clears throat> no, if you are in Christ, what does it say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. What does it say about the old? The old is gone. The new has come. So if you're struggling with sin, it's not because your old nature is still there. Your old nature has been put to death. You are a new nature. Stick with me and listen closely. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. Actually, we're in Romans 6 where we left off. Go to Romans 7. I want you to see this. Look at verse 14. Romans 7 verse 14. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. <coughs> so, excuse me, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. For I, don't, I do not do what I want, but the, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, listen, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find this law, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my body parts another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So what he's saying is that the battle is not between your new nature and your old nature. Your old nature has been put to death. The battle is now between your new nature, who you are in Christ, and what? Your flesh. And sin is still in our flesh. You do hopefully understand that when you got saved, your body was not redeemed. It's still under the curse. So what's going on now is, is when, when someone sins who is a Christian... Let's say Steve over here sins. I use him as an example because for most of us, it's really easy to picture. All right. Let's just, I told you not to sit this close. Let's just say that Steve sins as a believer and we know Steve's a believer. Amen. We have to then say that wasn't Steve. That was his flesh. I used an illustration in a conversation we had at dinner last night, and I think God's releasing me to do it. My wife will get uncomfortable, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Ladies, are there not times of the month that you don't act like you? Absolutely not. Oh. <laughs> nice try. One of the things that has helped me and will help men is if they understand how to recognize when our wives start responding to things the way they normally wouldn't respond. And instead of getting upset when PMS or whatever kicks in, we have to say, and, I, and it's been a, a good thing to tell me, that, that's not her. That's something else that's taken over for a time. 
And it makes me not get my feelings hurt. It makes me not respond in a negative way. In the same way, folks, we need to give that same grace to each other. If we know we're brothers and sisters in Christ, in those times when we let the flesh take control, we should not jump on you and say, if you're really a Christian, you wouldn't do that. We need to say, that really wasn't Tony. Because Tony normally wouldn't act like that because of Christ in him. But that reaction or that attitude or that whatever... That was, hey, how many times did you as parents, when your kids started to act in a way that wasn't very normal, your first thing was, you need a nap? <laughs> did you not? When your kid started to just start to act in a way that you were like, whoa, where'd that come from? Somebody needs a nap, right? Yeah. And they would always say, no, I don't. That's just how I feel. I'm this, I'm upset. No, you didn't. No, I don't. Just go lay down for, I don't want to. Just to. <laughs> Folks, it's time that we as Christians stop expecting everyone to be perfect. But we understand that we are all in the process of growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're learning what it means to live out of the spirit versus out of the flesh. And in those times when we act in the flesh, we need to step back and say, that's not really them. Or me. Right. Exactly. No. When we do it, Satan will come and he'll start to accuse and condemn. Right at the end of chapter 7, when Paul says, who will give me victory? Who will help me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Look what it says in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many church issues would go away? Yes. If we stopped saying she did this, she did that. I, I didn't plan on doing this, and I'm going to do it fast. In John chapter 13, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he wasn't teaching about service, folks. We've been taught that he was teaching them to serve. But I can prove to you he wasn't teaching about service because Peter said, I'm not going to let you wash me. Jesus said, you don't know what I'm doing right now. Later you will. You see, if Jesus was teaching about service, Peter knew what he was doing because Peter said, I don't want you to serve me. And then he then made this statement, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part in me. Peter, of course, said, well, give me the whole bath. Wash, wax, rinse, everything. And the buff. Jesus said, you, you don't need a bath. You're already clean. But you need your feet washed. What Jesus was teaching was not service, but he was teaching about sanctification. For those of us who are in Christ, we don't need to get saved again when we sin. We've already been made clean. We're already clean because of the word he's spoken to us by his grace. He's declared us righteous. Yet we get our feet dirty throughout the day, don't we? And Jesus was washing their feet as a picture of sanctification. Now I'm going to ask you a quick question. When Jesus washed their feet as a picture of sanctification, did he wash their feet before they asked him or after they asked him? Before. In other words, Jesus was washing their feet before they even asked for sanctification. Before they even knew they needed it. Oh, by the way, that matches up with the heart of God, doesn't it? Wasn't Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the world wasn't at that time asking for, th for forgiveness. They didn't even know what they needed. But he was praying for what they needed in accordance with the will of God before they even knew. When he said to Peter, he said, hey, huh, uh, Satan has asked to sift you his wheat. And I prayed for you. And my prayer was that your faith won't quit when you fail. Uh, well, Peter says, I don't need prayer. 
Jesus had prayed for him in accordance with the will of the Father before he even knew what he really needed. Listen closely. After Jesus washed their feet ahead of time, he was teaching them about sanctification. We've been taught that confession is when we tell God what we've done and then he forgives us. Because remember, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and then we'll forgive us our sins. Well, if you go back and look at that passage, it doesn't say if then. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, confession, the word in the Greek is homologeo, or to say the same thing or to agree. If Dave says something to me and I agree with Dave, who started the conversation? Dave did. So if confession is agreeing, right? Who has to start the conversation between me and God for me to confess to God? We've been taught that confession was us starting the conversation. We've been taught that we, I've been in plenty of churches where as the service starts, they'll have a time of confession where people will just confess their sins to God so that they can start off the service cleansed and all this. No, confession is not me telling God what I've done. Confession is what Peter finally did when he stopped pushing Jesus away who was trying to wash him. Isn't that the message of the gospel? Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. God loves the whole world. He's reaching out to the world through his spirit and through his servants, saying to them, I've already paid for your sins. Receive this free gift of salvation. Their confession is when they agree with God who's already started the conversation and stop pushing him away and receive this salvation by faith. Correct? Listen, Christians, and we're about to get to where I chased this rabbit for Christians, sanctification for us is in the same process. It's not God up there waiting for us to admit what we've done so he'll wash us and give us the foot washing. Jesus is continually, the Bible says in, the, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that our inward man, our inner self, the new creation, is being renewed day by day. The Spirit of God is not sitting back waiting. He's proactive. He's actually pursuing us. He's continually saying to us, I want to continue this process of conforming you into my image. I want to pour my spirit into your in this area of your life, would you stop and let, just receive what I have for you? Stop pushing me away. And when we believe that God is forgiving and has already forgiven and received this grace, He cleanses us from all our sin. Well, listen. Then Jesus made this statement. He said, if I, your master and Lord, have done this for you, you need to do this for each other. In other words, Jesus said, I just gave you grace for sins you haven't even committed yet. I washed your feet, Peter, before you even denied me. You don't know what I'm doing right now, but later it's going to sink in. In that time when all of a sudden you grasp that after you did your denial, it's going to hit you that I already washed your feet before you even did it. If God gives us grace before we need it, we need to do the same to each other. In other words, Mark, there are going to be days I push your button the wrong way. Amen. <laughs> Sounds like you're looking forward to the day. It might come sooner than I thought. But uh, I'm saying to you, and I want to give you the same grace, that in those times when I don't walk in the Spirit, even though I am a new creation, even those days that Something else controls me and I don't look like Jim. You need to toward me and I need to toward you have the attitude that says I know who they really are. 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that go. I've already forgiven it before it happens. So that when it happens, I already know I've already let it go. One of the things that helped me as a parent was being a pastor before we had kids. I actually have been preaching for 30 years. We've only had kids for 21. Nicole's 21. And being in the pastoral ministry for nine years before we had kids was a benefit and a blessing. You know why? Because in my role, I was to have to counsel a lot of people through stuff. I learned a lot about what not to do or what to do. I learned a lot ahead of time so that by the time our kids came around, I wasn't surprised by what was happening next. God had already shown me what was going to happen. And when our kids reacted in those phases in ways that normally I would have gotten angry or upset, I was able to give them grace because I already knew it was coming. Quick example. When Nicole was little, she used to think that daddy could walk on water and could fix everything and there was nothing that he couldn't do. Unfortunately, she grew up and realized that wasn't true. <laughs> but before she did... We started to see as her body was changing and pre-puberty was starting to kick in. We started to see where she was headed. And Becky and I sat her down and we said, Nicole, something's going to start to happen to you where you start to think you're smarter than us. <laughs> oh, no, I would never do that. Oh, honey, it's OK. We're telling you ahead of time. It's just natural. It's in our bodies. But you're going to think you're smarter than us. And one of the ways you'll know is when mom or dad tell you something, your first reaction is going to be, I know. I would never say that, dad, mom. I really wouldn't. No, honey, relax. It's okay. It's going to. It wasn't two weeks later. Seriously. She was walking through the kitchen. Mama said something to her and her reaction was, I know. And she burst into tears. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that. And we're like, relax, relax. But you know what? It helped that I knew ahead of time and could prepare her and prepare ourselves. We've never been taught this truth about who we are in Christ. We've been trying to act like everybody should be perfect. Why did you act like that? Why did you do that? Why did you offend me? Why did you hurt my feelings? Why did you not pick me? Why did you sit in my seat? All this silly stuff we get upset about when we should have been taught earlier. As Jesus taught his disciples, but they didn't quite grasp it and we haven't quite grasped it. I've forgiven you ahead of time. I already know what you're going to do. It's all a part of the schedule. But you know what? One day, I see the Peter. And it's, you're going to get there. And folks, I promise you, that's what's going on in this study, is that people are hungry for real Christianity. They don't want church. People say, well, People don't want to go to church anymore. And I say, you know why? They've been. <laughs> it's not about, they just need to go to church. No, they need to see Jesus. Oh, you can't try to be like Jesus. You're going to have to, in a slow process, in the group that God puts you together in, give each other grace. And as you do, we'll become more and more like Jesus, and the world will be drawn to that. Amen. He'll be drawn to that. That was page one. <laughs> when Paul, in the time we have left, in the 15 minutes we have left, when Paul is telling us to set our minds on things above and not on earthly things, he's telling to us to live out of our new nature in Christ. That's what he's saying. 
He said, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. He's simply saying, live out of your new nature in Christ. All right? In other words, stop trying to walk with God by using the old methods of rule following. They don't bring us closer to God, and they only fuel our flesh's desire to sin. We dealt with that last week, so we don't have to go back over that. But if you think you're going to get better by setting yourself a set of rules, and I'm going to be devoted to doing these things, guess what? I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to fall flat on your face, because that will not bring you closer to God. How do we get closer to God? Does anybody know the answer yet? Abiding and what? We said arise, but there's more to it. There's a word I'm looking for. Submit, obey, rest. That's close. It's an F word. Faith. Listen closely. It's by believing that God will do all these things in us. Not that if I do it, God will be pleased. No, he's already pleased. You go to Isaiah 53 and it talks about Jesus' death and it says, And God the Father saw the suffering of his soul and was satisfied. I don't know if you understand this yet or not. Didn't you read that in Christ? If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Do you realize for years, if I struggled with a certain sin, say that God knew that I was going to do this sin a hundred times before I finally learned to give him victory. When I'm in my 75th time of sinning, on my side of the tail, I'm saying, oh, I did it again. That's the 75th time. You know what God says? 25. Only 25 more. <laughs> Only 20. You understand what I'm saying? God sees the finished product. He's going to finish what he started. You're going to get there. Yeah, this is a tough patch we're in right now, but you're going to be all right. When we, by faith, Believe that all these things that God expects of us, that he's going to do it. Listen, if we act on what we say we believe. That's when we start to see these things change. But I've learned. God will. Listen, this is very important. God will not bring you to this understanding until he's let you try to fix it yourself long enough. I'm going to say that to you again. because This is very important for a lot of us. And this was a big thing for me. God will not let you get to this full understanding until he's let you try to fix it yourself long enough. You ever notice when, when, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say to him? Everything. No, sell everything was not the first thing he said. He said, keep the law. Wait a minute, Jesus, what are you doing? You're the one that wrote this book. You wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Why would you tell him to keep the law? Well, we know now, it was, keep reading in chapter 3, verse 20, through the law we become what? Conscious of sin. This young man, even though he wasn't able to keep the whole law, thought he could. So Jesus says, you want to have eternal life? Well, first, you've got to get to the end of yourself thinking that you can get eternal life by being good. You think you've kept the whole law. You haven't. Oh, you think you have, but I'll tell you what. I've summed up the law and the prophets into two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're able to keep the whole law, this should be simple. Tell you what, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. That's the neighbor part, and come follow me. All he did was just give him more law. The guy went away sad. Did Jesus chase him? Why? Because for this young man to come to full salvation, he had to come to the end of himself and realize, I can't be righteous. Oh, good. Now you're ready. I've come to realize 
that God uses the same process for his children after salvation. The same process after salvation. We've already been declared righteous. But we've been taught, unfortunately, that it's up to us now to live the Christian life. And God says, go have your fun. Try it. And it isn't until you get to that point where you stop trying, you give up trying, that God then says, now let me. The prodigal. The prodigal says to his dad, I don't want to wait until you die. You're dead to me now. Isn't that what he said? I don't wait until you die to get my inheritance. You're dead to me now. Give me my money. Most of us would say over my dead body. <laughs> right? What did the father in that story say? Go. This is the only way you're going to really understand. You're going to have to come to the end of yourself. You're going to have to come to the realization that everything you thought that was going to bring you satisfaction is not enough. Folks, too many of us have been trying and trying and trying to be good Christians and trying to live the Christian life. And we struggle. I've been there. 14 years ago, while I was pastor at this church, God took me through that journey. And right about the time that he was moving me from the pastorate into this ministry, in that whole process, he was beginning at the same time to get me to stop trying to be a better Christian on my own strength and to learn to let God do it. And as you've heard me say before, and I'll get right to you, when I stopped trying to get better as a Christian, I got better. Yes, sir. It's not really having faith, it's submitting. Yes, we have already the faith that we need. It's sub surrendering to it. It's acting on what we say we believe. But you're right. How is Jesus described, by the way, here in Colossians chapter 3? Has anybody caught it yet? When Christ, verse 4, who is your life? Everything you need, everything you desire, everything you want to accomplish in God will only be accomplished by who? By Jesus in you. What did Jesus say in John 15 when he's teaching on abiding? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Folks, we're, when we come back next week, going to move into... Well, let's read these next verses real quick. Verses 5 and following. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you see it? It's happening whether you realize it or not. All right. Why? Well, we'll deal with it. I'm going to ask you that. I'm going to give you this question now. Don't answer it now. We'll deal with it next week. Why does God tell us to do what we've been already been saying he's going to do? We'll answer that question next week when we get together. Why does God tell us to do what he said he was going to do? We'll deal with that next week. Well, what I want to do in the time we have left here is can anybody show me in verses 5 through 10 how this passage is actually saying that what he's telling us to do here is to be done by faith and not by us? Can anybody see it in this passage? Take some time. I'm not, I'm not worried about a little bit of silence. Look at, this, look at those verses in verses 5 through 9, I'm sorry, 5 through 10. There's actually something in there that shows you that what he's asking of us, he's already showing us in this passage, is to be done by him and not by us. Can anybody see it? All right, well, he's, he's telling, it, that's one of those places where he says you're to do it. 
But where in this passage does it say it's actually going to be done by him? Verse 10. Verse 10. You got it. That's right. Look at verses 9 and 10. Don't lie to another, seeing that you have already put off the old self. By the way, how did we put off the old self? When you received Jesus, the old self was put to death. Who put it to death? You? No. no I, we tried to kill it. We couldn't. We, it's already begun, he's saying. You've already put off the old self, which, by the way, God did, not us. And we're now we've already put on the new self. By the way, did you do that? No, God did. And I love it, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. In this passage, and we'll deal with more specifically why God tells us to do it next week. But as we go into the we're closing tonight, what I want you to see is this. When we start getting into this section of what we're to put off and what we're to put on. I want you to understand that all along in this passage, it's always been there. that This is something God's doing. How we put it off and how we put it on is by Faith. I actually had the privilege of being able to go to church with my family this past Sunday. Palm Sunday and Easter are not Sundays that churches usually have the traveling preacher come. And so I'll, I'm usually in town around Easter time and around Thanksgiving and Christmas, because that's when usually the traveling preacher churches don't bring in the guest speaker. They're not time. And our pastor, Pastor Titus, preached on something similar to this from Ephesians on Sunday and he brought out a wonderful thing. And uh, he talked about how for years we've been told to wear those what would Jesus do bracelets. And we tried to do what Jesus would do. And it really didn't help us much, did it? Because we, we couldn't do what Jesus did. But he brought up this question. He said, instead of saying what would Jesus do, we should say, what did Jesus say he would do? Now, that would make a really big bracelet. But, and I've already tried to figure it out. It was what... W, D, J, S, never mind. But I want to ask you that. I want to begin to have you, as we get into next week, begin to start asking yourself that same thing. In this situation that I'm wrestling with, whatever it is, what did Jesus say already that he would do? Believe it. What did Jesus promise me in this situation? Receive it. What did he say that we're to do? Act in obedience by faith. You already have the faith. It's now just acting on it by saying, you said it, I believe you'll do it. And then we act like he has. Isn't that how you got saved? We have to know what he said, though. You got to know what he said. It talks about being renewed in knowledge. And we love to throw out the might, you know, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. But no one reads the next verse where take up my yoke and learn. Exactly. Yep, exactly. It's a learning process. And so actually, what I want you to understand is this. Is Jesus in this journey he's taken us on of growing in, our gra in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, expecting perfection tomorrow? What's he looking for tomorrow? Faith. That's all. And actually, for some of God's purposes, he's going to let you fall flat on your face. Why? Because it'll be the best way for you to learn. And he knows each of his kids. That's one of the problems in Christianity, is we think all the kids should look alike. That's why we tell everybody what version we're all supposed to be using. That's why we tell everybody how we're all supposed to dress. That's why we tell everybody everybody's hair length is all supposed to be a certain length. We all decide ahead of time what every good Christian is supposed to look like. By the way, it's usually what you looked at in the mirror that morning on the way to church. 
But actually, for those of you that have had more than one kid, did the same thing work with each kid? No. You had to, as a godly parent, realize what works with this kid. How can I, how, this one's a visual learner. Some are auditory, some are more tactical. And you developed your discipline and your training according to who they are, right? Your heavenly father does the same thing. How he's going to work with one person isn't going to be how he works with the nest. There are some principles. There are some truths involved. But we've got to stop expecting that everybody else is going to have it the same way. By the way, isn't that part of the reason why we make our church manuals the way we do? So that everything is equal for everybody. And we're working against who God is and what he does and how he works. So for tonight, we're going to just stop here. And just leave off with the fact that when we come back, we're going to look at the how to put off and how to put on. But it starts with believing that God will do what he said he would do. And then we do what he says to do, believing that he's going to one that's going to make it work. And we'll deal with more of that next week. All right. It always shocks me at how fast the hour goes. But I look forward to being back with you next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this chance to come and to study your word. Thank you for the fact that as we move to our new venue, it's already snug. But I thank you for the fact that there's lots of room to grow in this place. And, and you've given us a spot for quite a while. And I thank you for that. But Lord, you know each of our hearts. <laughs> we hope it's not quite a while because <laughs> we'd love to see you come. We look forward to, as we come back next week, looking at that verse there in verse 4 where it says, uh, we are, when you appear, we're going to appear with you in glory. And we can't wait for that day. But Lord, for tonight, may we, by the spirit that you've given us, that lives within us, it will give us insight and knowledge. By the truth of your word, take some time and meditate on these truths of the fact that we have been put to death. Sin's been put to death. Our old nature's been put to death. We're a new creation now. And that new person, that new us, is through your spirit living within us, and we have been co-resurrected with Jesus. And as he's sitting now above all rule and authority, and he lives within us, and we've been given fullness in Christ, may we begin to have our eyes open. We're asking you to do it. Paul not only prayed it for the church there in Ephesus and the other churches in the area, he also prayed it for us, and we're asking you ourselves, God, continue this journey. There's lots of people in this room who've been moved from legalism to grace. We thank you for it. But Lord, we're still learning. It's still hard at times because we kind of tend to fall back into default mode. We have a tendency to get offended easily. We have a tendency to jockey for position. We have a tendency to act in what we've looked at tonight just briefly was idolatry. Because we sought other things than really trusting you. But Lord, <laughs> thank you that uh, what we were is not what we are, and thank you that what we will be is not where we are now. And we just pray that we would keep that understanding not only individually, but share it with the people around us. Thank you again for a wonderful time tonight with brothers and sisters in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.